from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 264 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Nancy Johnson. Nancy, welcome back. How are you? Thank you. I'm always happy to be here. It's been an exciting long couple weeks in the heat. I know. I know. We. I think it got up to like 110 here a few days ago. Wow. So, but now it's a cool 102. (laughs) (laughs) They had said a few weeks ago that we were going to we were going to have the coolest summer in 28 years. So. So we had a wonderful 4th of July. It was just perfect weather. I tell you, June gloom went way beyond June into July this year for us. So so. just one of those things. We had a lot more May gray than we Uh usually do. So, well, now now we can look forward to sunny, sunny summer. So in this episode, I'm going to share a few of the talks I've attended at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And we have a theme going here. It is going, it all deals with Imagineering. One of our most fun and fascinating, um, you know, divisions of the Walt Disney companies, wet Imagineering. So recently, the most recent talk I'm going to share with you is uh, from July 15th, 2023 at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And this was terrific. It was, it was um, Leslie Iwerks was the presenter. And she, the topic was behind the Imagineering story. Of course, we all know about the Imagineering story series that's on Disney Plus that was first broadcast in 2019. And then she came out with the history of Imagineering, the Walt, the Imagineering story that is, it's like 725, 750 pages. It's very comprehensive and it's almost all text, which is nice. So Nancy, have you, did you watch the Imagineering story series on Disney plus years back? Yeah, I did. It's so been you- a while, but it was definitely one of the first things I hit up when when we got the service. Yeah. And it was, I think, a highlight of Disney Plus. You can rewatch that over and over again because there's so many details in it. And no word yet if there's going to be a season two, but I think she's she's still compiling notes and things that um in case there is. So which notes is exciting. Are good. Yeah. Of course, folks probably know who listen to this show that her grandfather was of Iwerks. He helped Walt design and animate Mickey Mouse in the early years. And he was considered the preeminent animator of his day. He could churn out 900 sketches in a day. Can you believe it? And um, so when he left the Disney studio briefly, uh, they had to hire multiple people to replace Ub. 
So for the output. And her father was um, Don Iwerks, who also worked in Imagineering. Ub ended up working in Imagineering, and so did Don. And she was supposed to show a video, uh, the Disney Plus promotion of the documentary, but there was a technical glitch. So we just, she just jumped right into the presentation. So when her grandfather, Ub, passed away, um, she was one year old. And so she grew up with everything that captured images. It's every type of camera and digital optical device you can imagine, because her father was very interested in that as well. So she learned about Ub's work with Disney as she grew up. And, you know, she talked about the the very short-lived iWorks Disney Company that they formed when they were teenagers, Ub and Walt formed. And, um, and then they, and then, then, that didn't do so well. It went, um, you know, they declared bankruptcy on that one. And then they returned to the Kansas city film company and that, and then during this time, that's when Walt started working on the Alice comedies at the, and the laughograms at the, when they started the laughograms studio in Kansas city. Well, Walt ended up going to California because, as you know, laughograms also went belly up. You know, as Walt said, you know, he believed you had to have a good, hard failure in your life sometimes in order to point you in the right direction. And so that failure of laughograms pointed him in the direction of California, where his brother Roy was recuperating in a VA hospital um, from tuberculosis. So um, Walt started to, you know, he started up his studio with, with, uh, with his brother Roy because they got a contract for the Alice uh, comedies, and Walt sent for Up because he knew he he wanted Up to be a part of this. So you, of course, we all know they worked. Uh, they also worked on Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and you know until um, Walt lost control of that and most of his animators, and then. As I mentioned, uh, help co-design Mickey Mouse. It was all Walt's idea. Walt d- drew the original concepts for Mickey, as we know, and then um, Ub sort of refined them and drew several versions of potential Mickeys. And then uh, um, Walt chose the one he wanted. And if you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, that little sketch of all the multiple Walt, uh, all the multiple Mickeys is there. And you see a big circle around the one in the center. And that became the Mickey Mouse we all know and love today. So, um, so he did leave Walt Disney Studios for a while. And then when he returned, Walt, Walt was delighted and said, you can work on whatever you want to do. And, and, um, Ub was really fascinated with opticals and cameras and all of that. And if there was a problem to be solved, it, you know, Walt, Walt went to Ub for the problem and Ub generally solved the problem. One of the big technologies he's known for is the sodium traveling mat process. And this is combining sort of live animation with animation and making the backgrounds more fluid and looking more like the, the people belonged in the backgrounds and all that. So, um, so they, this process started out with the three caballeros, 
probably is most famously used for Mary Poppins. Think of the Jolly Holiday scene. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and Dick Van Dyke dancing with the penguins and all that and how seamless that was. And he looked like, yeah. you know, Mary and Dick, you know, or Bert and, and the children looked like they were really in that animated fantasy world. That's all thanks to Up. And if you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, they have the machine there. And there's a wonderful display, audiovisual display with, with Dick Van Dyke explaining how it worked. Now I listened to it. I've listened to it multiple times. I still don't totally understand how it worked, but it was used in, you know, films like Treasure Island and Darby O'Gill and the Little People. When you think of those beautiful backgrounds, well, that a lot of that was matte work. And, um, and then the, the live action was inserted into it. Again, this machine was used for that. So, um, so cool. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, up was a brilliant man. Um, he helped save the studio, studio's animation division with the Xerox animation process for 101 Dalmatians. Ken Anderson frequently also gets, um, he gets the credit for it, but it was up that ref- created and refined the process. It was Ken Anderson's idea. Let's look into Xerox, but it was up that made it happen in there. And then when Don, um, Leslie's father, was 91, he wrote the story of his father. And that it, that was called, you know, The Man Behind the Mouse. And I think they even made it into a documentary as well. Yeah. So, um, so Don was an assistant cameraman for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And he he made sure the cameras were sealed and that they didn't leak. And he was very proud of himself that not one camera leaked. Think of all those underwater scenes in 20,000 leaks. So they were um, pretty intense. Some of those, I I can't imagine being an actor and walking in those like diving bell suits they had. Oh, I know. know. And being filmed, it looked, it didn't look easy <laughs> to to act in or film. So, and that was that was all done, you know, underwater and all that. He later, John later worked in the machine shop um, for the studio, building camera systems and automation for the Disney parks. So um, they said um, they showed this rubber hand that was used for. Um, the Lincoln figure in great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Well, Don's hand was the model for it. So, um, yeah. So, and Leslie said, and she was a little girl. They had a rubber hand at home that was from this. She (laughs) and her sister would hide it all over the house to scare guests when they came over. And she even took it to school and like put it in her teacher's desk drawer and all that to scare her. And, and so, um, Sounds like they had a lot of fun with that hand. Yeah. And and the hand to this day is still referred to as the iWorks hand. They have um, multiple hands models that they use. So Don's is called the iWorks hand. And it's been used on other figures too, um, especially in the Hall of Presidents. I was going to say that it seemed like an obvious choice to use the same body modeling over and over. Yeah, yeah. So, but I thought, oh, that, that's an interesting story I'd never heard before. So, um, Leslie said she got into 
film by mere curiosity. And she's the one that got Disney to film the documentary, The Man Behind the Mouse, and then, and then wrote the book. So with her father on that. So all about up. So, and then John Lasseter saw it and he asked her to do the Pixar story. I know that was on Disney Plus. I don't know if it still is. I, I have to check. But have you seen that? Um, no, I actually have not seen that one. That, but that mm-hmm. needs to be added onto the watch list. Yeah, it's really good. I've only seen it once, so I need to rewatch it. It was also, I don't remember which DVD it was. Um, it was included as like, the, you know, bonus features on one of the DVDs. I'm assuming it's for one of the probably the Pixar releases or something, but, um, but it's, I know it's, you can't order it separately, but I know it's included in, in, in the, one one of the DVDs in there. So um, now she's, Leslie said she loved documentaries and going into different worlds and telling her stories. She's done a lot of documentaries, not just Disney documentaries. So, but she's, she said everything stems back to Walt. And Walt was always taking chances. He would fail, then he succeeded, then he failed, and then he tried again. And I've always said that a lot of times we can learn more about people and ourselves by how they bounce back from failures. So, you know, I'm not interested in sanitized versions of, you know, people when I read biographies or autobiographies. I like to know what they had to overcome. And Walt overcame a lot. She said he was fearless and he never gave up. And he had the will to just do things and try things and learn about things. So out of his own pocket, he created Wed Enterprises to create Disneyland. We've heard all the stories about how like he sold his Palm Springs home at Smoke Tree Ranch. He yeah. he um, cashed in his his life insurance policy he did all kinds of things to fund it because Roy wasn't too excited about um, building a theme park at the time. So, um, so anyway, so Marty Scalar asked her to screen the Pixar story for Imagineering. And then he later asked, um, when will she do the Imagineering story? And she said, just give me the word, Marty. And he basically said, the word is given, <laughs> you know, go for it. So she did a proposal for a 90 minute, film. And then when everyone read the proposal and all that, Bruce Vaughn gave her a five-year contract to film whatever they were doing around the world and then put together this 90-minute film. Well, she had enough film for a six-hour, almost a seven-hour film. So she also was able to use some films from the archives um, that, you know, a lot of which had never been seen by the public before. So they created that six episode series, The Imagineering Story, that aired in 2019 before the pandemic. So, so then she was asked to write a book to include what she left on the cutting room floor. And that's the Imagineering Story book that was, I think it was published last year. So, um, Anyway, maybe earlier this year, but um, anyway, and it's huge. I mean, it's it's well over 700 pages and most of it is text. So you really get a good, good background 
on the history of Imagineering. There's some great stories in there. So it's a wonderful companion to the documentary series on Disney+. Plus. So she got the question, how do you start when you're doing something like this? Well, she showed <laughs> basically a recreation of what they set up, which was all these color-coded topics all on a board for every single episode. And they were organized by topics. They were color-coded. Um, it, it included who will speak on the different topics. You might remember, they had a lot of people from Imagineering, you know, yeah. speaking on it. Um, she interviewed over 200 people for the documentary. And then once they had all that settled, they began rearranging the topics. So it was, this was, it was very impressive. I think they went through a lot of post-it notes or something in that one. Um, now, yeah, she said this was the first time Disney really showed behind the scenes. So it wasn't just a puff piece, you know, the Imagineering story. So, um, so in the book, She's included more details about attractions and innovations that Imagineering made. And she documented it from, for, for Shanghai Disneyland, she was able to document it when it was just dirt to opening day. And she said that there are two strengths in Imagineering that have stood the test of time. One is teamwork. And in the book, she talks about the best and worst you know, of teamwork and also story. Story was always Walt's guiding light. Everything revolved around the story. So Walt and his Imagineers, they basically took the, you know, the two dimensional animation and they created the 3D animation with audio animatronics. So the Tiki Room was the first audio animatronic show. But Walt wanted to create a um, human, which would become Lincoln at the New York World's Fair. So Walt went to Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen in 1951, and Walt liked it because it was clean. It was family-friendly, and it had beautiful gardens. And so Tivoli Gardens is on my wish list. And they say that when you go there and see it, you can see exactly what where Walt drew his inspiration from in that park. So, and always, and she said, you always have to think outside the box and you have to think creatively, you know, for Imagineering. And then she said she got more into Animal Kingdom in the book rather than in the, in the documentary series. And she said, it's, it's all about Joe Rody. This is his park. So after, planning, securing the budget. She said, for any project, you have to have a pitch meeting, which is the hardest thing to do. And uh, I'll get into when we talk about another topic. She discussed it, but I'm going to get into another topic on, on Joe Rody's pitch meeting for um, Animal Kingdom uh, when I talk about um, another talk that I intended so and the Imagineers went to Africa so they could create realism. And that's why, um, you know, Animal Kingdom isn't a perfect park. You see buildings that are in various states of, I don't know, decay or have been hit by the elements and all that. So it's not a perfect world in Africa. So she did not want that. And Joe didn't want that reflected. You know, he didn't want it. He wanted that reflected that 
you know, it's not a perfect world in all these places. Um, Kilimanjaro safaris filled a dream of Walt who he remember he wanted live animals in the jungle cruise, but people said, well, you know, there's not enough room and the animals, you know, they sleep during the day and all that. So they wouldn't perform on cue. And that's how the, um, automatic animals that we have in jungle cruise came to be. Um, her book also covers the galactic star cruiser and also how imagineering, uh, you know, soldiered on during COVID. So she, she said the lessons learned is, is to be bold, be passionate and be willing to pitch your ideas to the highest levels. And this applies you know, whatever field that you, that you're in. And then there was a Q and a, and, um, it was asked, why did, um, a believe, um, the Disney studios for a while. And she said, that, you know, she wasn't there. She's only heard stories from her grandmother, but she said that according to her grandmother, there are differences over Mickey mouse. Um, you know, and, and Walt and, uh, felt, you know, they had different personalities and Ub felt taken for granted as Walt Disney grew in stature. So he got an offer from MGM to start his own anima- animation studio. Well, you know, those kinds of offers didn't come along every day. So, um, so, and since Ub was considered the preeminent animator, he, um, took, he took the job offer. And start and started his own animation studios. And Walt was hurt, and he had, like I mentioned earlier, he had to hire several animators to replace Ub. But Ub was surprised that Walt was so hurt, which is interesting. And um, and so Ub, yeah, so Ub was, uh, but Ub learned he was not the story man that he thought he was. And so the studio didn't take off. And he did create a character called Flip the Frog. So, and, and you can see images of it, you know, on the internet and all that. Um, so, Ub became more interested in tinkering than in animation. And that's sort of how he um, ended up at the Walt Disney Company and at the studio, or Walt Disney Productions, and, you know, created a few of the things that I talked about at the beginning of this segment. So, um, so that was the story, the, uh, behind the, uh, you know, uh, behind the Imagineering story. So that's, it's, it's so interesting. And I wonder if people ever look at their relationship, you know, in a, a family sort of way, you know, obviously Ub was, you know, had his feels and Walt has his feels. How many families do we know that, you know, disagree and bicker and argue and then they go away from each other for a while and then realize that they needed each other in some capacity all along. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it seems like that's very much of a dynamic when it all boils down to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I, yeah, that happens, like you said, in all kinds of situations. And it seems to have happened between Walt and Ub. They went their separate ways, but then realized they needed each other. And so, and then she showed, she, of course, along in this presentation, she showed a lot of images, showed another video about the Imagineering story that was a promo, a different promo video for, um, for the series. And, but there were some wonderful, uh, 
you know, um, photos of Walton up, you know, later in their life, enjoying each other, talking, looking over the early drawings of Mickey Mouse and all that. So they definitely, you know, their, their friendship continued on until, you know, the final days in there. So, which is nice that they were able to reconcile that. Well, another talk that I went to that had to do with Imagineering was back on um, May 29th, 2023, the Walt Disney Family Museum. And this was presented um, by former Imagineer and friend of Walt, Julie um, Svensson. And she was there to talk about the artistry of Disney legend Walt Paraguay. And that, he may be a name a lot of us don't know, but we should know. We don't want him lost to history. So Carol's mother um, was a Disney artist, and she also worked at the archives. And Julie started out in Imagineering, creating illustrations for Epcot uh, and Tokyo Disneyland and the other parks. And she was one of the co-authors of the book, Women of Imagineering. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful book. So she started out as an account clerk at at WED, and then four years later, she went back to school to study art, and then she was hired at WED in the model shop, and later as a graphic designer. So um, so she said that Walt Paragoy was hired, he was born in 1925 in Los Angeles, and he was raised in Alameda up here in Northern California. Yeah, it's right down the freeway for me, as a matter of fact. Alameda? Well, it's probably closer yeah. to me. <laughs> it's, it's down the freeway for me. It used to be a submarine base oh, for the Navy you, years ago. You know what? I'm thinking of Alameda as an Alameda that's the township just on the other side of Pasadena. Oh, okay. Now, this Which is up in Northern California. Our- yeah, on the know. bay. On San Francisco Bay, and it was a um, it was a naval base, big naval base, wow. and now there's still a lot of ships there, and it's it's opened as a museum, so they have a number of ships that you can tour there. Oh, fun! So, as a boy, Walt Paragoy took drawing lessons, and at 17, he dropped out of high school, and he applied to the Walt Disney Studios as an office boy. And then he showed his portfolio to some artists and he was hired as an in-betweener. And he quit after a year because he did not like the work. And I've heard from so many people who were in-betweeners, it is just so boring. And you're not doing your own work. You're sort of recreating, you know, other, other artists' yeah. work as you, you know, because what happens in animation, what the artists do is they will create major significant scenes for the characters. The in-betweeners have to fill in the gaps so that the animation is smooth from like one little scene to the other that the, the animators did. So it's a, it's a talent. Uh, you know, Rolly Crump was hired as an in-betweener on 101 Dalmatians, you know, drawing spots and he hated oh, it. Geez. And so he was rescued from that by one of the other animators who mentored him. So, Anyway, well, he then, after he quit, he joined the Coast Guard and then went to Chouinard Art College, but he quit when he was asked to take a lettering course. So he was very much his own person, it sounds like. <laughs> so well, he, lettering can make you quit. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it could be tedious. You know, Les Clark was hired because of his lettering, you know, at the Walt Disney Studio back in the lettering day. Lettering so. is a very tedious, te- it's very tedious, um, I don't want to say profession, but um, skill. That's what I'm looking for is skill. Uh, and absolutely. And detail. Oh, yeah. I would think too. It requires a ton of patience. Yeah. So Walt always dreamt of studying in France, Walt Paraguay, but he studied in San Miguel, Mexico. Um, He studied art and sculpting there. And then he returned to San Francisco and looked for work so that he could save enough money to study in France. Um, He finally came to the conclusion that he had to teach himself to become the artist that he wanted to be. So he had several one-man shows in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and he continued to draw and paint, and he was hired again at Walt Disney Productions as an artist. Um, he was uh, as a cleanup artist, and he worked on Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp, and he worked on backgrounds for one of my favorite films, because I think it's so beautiful, Sleeping Beauty. He worked oh. with Ivan Earl. On the backgrounds and also on the short, um, Paul Bunyan that a number of the animators worked on. I remember Paul Bunyan. Yeah. I like that one. That was a good one. I remember the song, you know, Hey Paul. <laughs> you know, anyway, I like that. Song. My favorite of the trio is Johnny Appleseed. I remember singing the Johnny Appleseed song. Oh, yeah. The Lord time. is good to me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so I the Lord forgiving me the apple. The, the things sun I need, and the, the rain, sun, and, rain, and the apple, apple seed. seed. The Lord is Lord good to me. me. At the summer camp I went to, where Carol and I met, um, that some of the girls would sing that song right before meals. You know that as their grace. Yes. Oh, that's fun! Yeah, I isn't that cute? Never yeah. thought of that. Yeah. So. Walt Paraguay then worked on 101 Dalmatians and Ken Anderson wanted a distinctive London background. And so he proposed the Xerox technology to create the film. We talked about that UB was instrumental in making happen. So um, Walt was busy with Disneyland. So he didn't pay as much attention to 101 Dalmatians as he did you know his other films um but when he finally saw 101 dalmatian he did not like the style he didn't like the the heavy black outlines on the characters you know things like that in there so paragoy was responsible for the bold colors and look of the film and so he continued working on pre-production for several animated films there was also a Walt Disney, a Walt World, Wonderful World of Color episode called Four Men Paint a Tree. And he was one of the artists selected um, to be in that episode. And it's, it's readily available and it's been online and, and it's, it's on some DVD sets, things like that. So, and it's an, inter- it's an interesting episode. So then he left um, Walt Disney Studios to work for Hanna-Barbera and several other animated TV series. And hey, then he, oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he was a background stylist um, for the Fred Calvert Studios on their TV series. 
And then after that, he was invited back to to um, Walt Disney Productions to design the Land Pavilion and Journey into Imagination. So he worked on conceptual designs for Journey into Imagination and uh, also the Wonders of Life Pavilion. And then he created murals for the Epcot Pavilions and he worked on designs for Kitchen Cabaret. I love kitchen curry. It was so Sorry. clever. And it was I know. just a wonderful way to educate and entertain at the same time. It, it's so sad that it just, people don't even know it was there. They're too busy running for Soren. Yeah, yeah. And then right heading over to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, and but some of the most famous things he's famous for, people just walk by. Like he created those wonderful mosaics at the entrance to the land pavilion. I love those. I do too. And and it represents the many aspects of the earth. And we talked about the land pavilion in a previous episode. We went into the details of those mosaics. But they were totally his vision and design. So I always take a look at those. Um, because I just think they're so beautiful and remarkable. And I try to determine, okay, what, what images are represented here and stuff. So it's really good. But after Epcot, as is happens to so many people, he was laid off after Epcot opened. So, you know, there's that famous photo of everybody around the Epcot model, all the Imagineers in front of Spaceship Earth. You want to open, well, most of those people were laid off. So afterwards, so, um, and he was named a Disney legend in 2008 and he passed in, um, in 2015. So, so that's the story of Walter Paraguay. So definitely someone we should remember. We definitely should remember his work and maybe think about him when you go, go into the land pavilion at Epcot. So the next one we're going to get into is, and I mentioned this book earlier, um, is The Women of Imagineering. There was a presentation on on the book and their experiences. And this was back on October 29th, 2022. And in this book, there, there are uh, sections written by different women, like um, Leanne um, Mesa-Rhodes, Peggy Farris, who was in the presentation, um, Maggie Irvine Elliott, Kathy Rogers, who was in the presentation, um, Katie Olson, Julie Svensson, um, Paula um, Dinkle, um, Ellie, um, Ellie Ur- oh gosh, I can't read my writing, Ellie Erlandison, I believe, I think it's Mincef Erlandison. She was there at the presentation. Um, Tori Atencio McCullough. She was there. That, uh, that word, that name Atencio might ring a bell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was, was going to say, I was going to ask if she was Axe's daughter. She was. She is. She's Exatencio's daughter. And she talked about him during this presentation. Also, there's Pam, um, Rank, um, Becky Bishop and Karen Connolly Ard. Um, Ar- Armitage are also um, all contributors to the book. So we have, there were four women there and um, Tracy Timmer was the host and she's the director of public programs 
the Walt Disney Family Museum. So she was asking questions. So one of the questions was, how, ha- how has the book evolved? You know, how did it start? So Ellie said she came in, it, it came from, um, the, the young architectural women at Walt Disney Imagineering who they wanted her to write a book about her architectural work. And so she started to work on the book for her family. And then she thought, no, she s- believed it would be best, um, for it to be a book about various women at Walt Disney Imagineering. So now, so there were some criteria for being a part of this book. You had to have been retired. Um, also, you had to have worked at Walt Disney Imagineering for a minimum of 20 years, but ideally more than 20 years. Um, you had to be a team lead and also a team member, and you had to want to sincerely tell your story. So she said it was difficult to get everyone together since many had moved after retirement. So they would meet at each other's houses and they would sort of rotate from house to house. And and they would show photos of it when they're sitting around eating, drinking wine. Um, that's probably when they got their best work done. And, you know, enjoy, you know, having lunch, things like that in there. So again, you know, she said Walt Disney Imagineering, as we already said, started out as an idea of Walt's when he wanted to create Disneyland. And he wanted this organization to be separate from the studio as a small design group that was called um, Wet Enterprises started in, she said, 1952. And then in the 1987-88 era, it became Walt Disney Imagineering. It was renamed. So Peggy said, and this this might surprise some people because when we think of Imagineering, we think of the audio animatronics, or maybe you think of, of design of buildings or of the parks. Right. But Peggy said there are 140 disciplines in Imagineering. You know, wow. from show designers to show writers to accountants. So anybody that wants to be a part of Imagineering, what I've always been told by Imagineers is to figure out your passion. And go to school, study it, maybe work for other organizations as you develop it, and then apply it Walt Disney Imagineering. Whatever your passion or area of interest is, there is probably a discipline for it in Walt at WDI, Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, whether it's secretary, you know, because there, there, there's creative and non-creative roles also in there as well. There's support roles, you know, in there as well. So she said that um, when there's a big project, they may have 1,000 to 2,000 Imagineers on the project. And as we mentioned earlier with Epcot, um, it shrinks down to about 400 once the project is done. So there's like a core of about 400 in Imagineering, 400 people. She said it's difficult to get accustomed to this because you forge friendships and then the people are gone after the project. So they decided that the proceeds from the book will go to the cause of educating young people to follow their dreams. So during the project, they realized that all the authors were white because they worked 20 plus years. You have to consider the era at the time, you know, during those 20 plus years. So she said, though, now it's different. And Marty Scalar, I know, was really behind diversity 
and, and hiring people from different areas and different disciplines in that. And he started programs for that. And she said, now it's much more diverse. But when they wrote the book, none of those people were yet retired. So that's why they're not um, reflected in this book. But she's hoping that they, and there she's encouraging them to write their own books someday when they retire so they can tell their stories. So um, a question was, um, was for each person to name a favorite project. So Kathy said she had several. She was first a project coordinator. And she said, when you see project coordinator, it means you're the gopher. And I know, I know your husband worked in television for Disney. So yes. I don't know if you can back that up. <laughs> if Ian can back that up, that's what a project coordinator um, is. In some ways, it um, he was more of an editor mm-hmm. and worked with the producer. And the producer seemed to be more gopherish than anything. But... Um, but yeah, with well, with editors, you're getting constant input, constant changes, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that really affects. Yeah. So she said she had a couple of favorite projects. She said her favorite was working with Jim Henson on Muppet Vision 3D, oh, which I really like. I, I wish imagine. they would. Upda- I wish they would update it. So yeah. and keep it, you know, keep it at at dis at the Walt Disney Studio Park there, um, well, Disney Hollywood sense. Studios. It makes sense in Hollywood studios, especially oh, since his ends bursting through the wall there. The, the backdrop being. And that's where it looks so dated. It looks really yes. dated there <laughs> with everybody in their, you know, in their 80s dress and hairstyles and all that. But she said Jim Henson had a joy and a sense of humor that made him wonderful to work with. Her favorite sort of functional project was Expedition Everest and working with Joe Rohde, um, you oh. know, and they they had to tell the story with the tools they had. Uh, and she said it was a very collaborative project. I like Expedition Everest, although I wish it fixed the Yeti. So. <laughs> well, apparently it has something to do with the, the Yeti's size and he was causing structural instability. I've heard that. I've heard that story. So, and I think until ridership decreases because people just say, I want to see the Yeti. So I'm not riding this till it's fixed. We're not going to see it repaired. So that's my belief anyway. Now, Ellie said it was hard to define a favorite project, but one of them was in the 1970s because she worked with Harper Goff on the world showcase and she designed whole pavilions for for the large epcot center model that you know we've wow. seen photos of that's very famous and she learned what it meant to be a thematic designer so she worked on concept designs for harambi um village in the africa section of animal mm-hmm. kingdom and which i love that area yeah. And and she traveled on a month's expedition to Africa. And then um Ooh. when they went, you know, you know, everything was was designed by Joe Rody and and you know, the whole trip was planned by Joe Rody and she sketched everything that she saw. What a wonderful experience that must have been. 
I've heard stories about it, and it was wonderful, but there were challenges as well. Because um, just imagine the environment of Animal Kingdom, and they were going out, you know, into the hitherlands. <laughs> to, oh, yeah. Um, to well, you've read the, the book they put out. Um, I think it was, was it on opening they actually had the book and catalog? It's a green book, and it's... um. It's all about the building creation. Of Matt, I have that book. Yeah, it's a great book. So I don't think it's in print anymore, but it's no. probably it's probably available out there for a price. So anyway, so she worked on Euro Disneyland that we know now as Disneyland Paris, on Hong Kong Disneyland, on the um, Tokyo um, parks. And also Shanghai Disneyland. So she would do the early designs at Walt Disney Imagineering. And then they were shipped to where the park would be built. And then all this information was then transferred to the companies they had hired for building the park. They did not understand thematic design based on drawings. So she had to work with them and teach them thematic design. So, and she, and also determine who are the quickest learners so that she could work more closely with them and sort of send the information to them. So she said for Hong Kong Disneyland, it was all done by computer and the, the folks that were supposed to build it couldn't figure out how to design Fantasyland on, on the computer. So th- what they had to do, because, you know, Fantasyland, the architecture yeah. is just so, you know, it, it's not re- from the real world. And, you know, there's right. no straight lines sometimes and, and all that. Yeah. So they had to do the renderings on paper and then build samples to show, like, how a tower would look in fantasy land. And so that, so that the lines and curves could be read correctly by the builders. And they said they had the same problem building the Ratatouille attraction, um, over in, um, the Walt Disney studios in Paris, that park. So Tori said she had two favorites. Epcot was sort of the first project where she learned her trade. And it, and she was excited because it was the first time they weren't building a castle park. So she said Disneyland Paris is a beautiful park. She lived in Paris for three and a half years and she had contractors from France, Italy and Ireland. And she had to learn how they worked and then coordinate all their styles um, for the project. Now, Peg was an English major with no expectation of working at WED Enterprises. So she started in Storybook Land, Storybook Land Canal Boats, as, as one of the guides, you know, at wow. Disneyland. Yeah. And then she became part of the Florida Project Press Conference team, where they sent some of the cast members over to Florida to sort of host the event. And um, she later spoke to Marty Sklar, and this was five years after working convention sales. And um, she asked, you know, what's, is there something for her to do in California? So he asked her to head um, 
and host conferences for potential sponsors for World Showcase and the Future World Pavilions. And then she was surprised by how many people were really willing to be on the advisory boards for the pavilions. Because, you know, especially for Future World, they had big names in in the various um, industries as a part of it. And Marty asked her to do the – now, this is would be my dream job. I would love to do this. Marty Sklar asked her to do the historical research for Spaceship Earth and 40,000 years of communication. I, yeah. I know this is sort of a geek thing, but this would fascinate me to be oh, a researcher yeah. for a project. I would love it. And so. then having to narrow it down to the scenes I eventually selected is just mm-hmm. crazy to me. That we all know Rome burns. I think that would be a big challenge for me because what do you cut out? What are the highlights? What are the significant events that you want to present, you know, in that show or in that pavilion? So that would, that takes a skill. That yeah. one I'm not sure I have, but it takes a skill. So, so she spent two years researching Cro-Magnons on ancient Egypt, the Phoenicians. And then, um, she, she had to recite what the Pharaoh wrote in a letter to one of his viziers. And we see that depicted in, you know, one yeah. of the scenes in Spaceship Earth. She had to translate it because it's a real, you know, it's a real, uh, document that the Pharaoh yeah. is reading from. So, um, she, she said that they were able to make a duplicate of a Gutenberg Bible for the attraction. And she also held a real document from the time of Charlemagne. But yeah, that just so cool. She said there are details in this attraction that most guests are, guests are unaware of. The hieroglyphics are real, you know, um, you know, just everything, everything that they present yeah. there is just down to the finest detail. And, um, you know, and most of us, we just ride through and we have no idea what's really in there in that attraction. She said there was a meeting about the model of spaceship earth. And John Hench said that there should be a wall depicting the 12, um, the 12 rules of Roman law. And she and there happened to be a book in Walt Disney Imagineering Library on 12th century Roman law. So she found what she needed, but it was all in Latin. <laughs> so she had to work and have it translated to, and, and what it ended up being mostly is about how witnesses are to be transported to court. Those are the 12 rules of Roman law, I guess. So, so they, yeah, yeah. That is important. So, so then they were asked what was most rewarding and um, about working on, you know, Epcot Center, and, as it was called at the time. Peg said she loved doing the research and talking to experts. And she said, you, I think, um, I think that this sort of goes to what you were saying, Nancy. She said, you'd think it's get easier as you move um sort of, you know, as you try to figure out, okay, what are the significant events? But also the section about the printing press was tough. Everything past the printing press 
that we right. see in there. She said was the most challenging. She said the toughest part is surprising. It was finding a one minute uncut black and white loop for the television, telegraph and radio scenes. And she said they finally oh, yeah. found this. Yeah, they finally found a scene from Fred Astaire's top hat that they could use in there, <laughs> if you look for it. Well, and then once you find the scene, you have to get the rights and all the mm-hmm. permissions. And was oh, yeah. was Top Hat an MGM film? Oh, I'm not sure. Out of curiosity, sure. I don't know. So, um, considering could, their partnership with MGM on the the studios, yeah, you know, and I've I seen still it call many it times. I still call it Disney MGM Studios. So. Let me see. It was a 1935 film. Let's see if um, it was. Oh, it goes into here. Goes into the difficult. It goes into. Let's see here. It was two, 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 two. RKO. It's RKO Radio Pictures. Okay. Who got you know bought by another film company? So. So um, Tori said that they didn't know how much trouble they were in to get it open on time. So she said, she said the work was sort of done out of sequence. So she was just very happy when the park opened. Ellie said her favorite project was the Walt Disney studios in Paris. And she Mm -hmm. said two days before opening the artwork for the entrance had not been framed. And so she went to Paris. She filled her car with frames and stayed up all night framing art. And she said, if there's a problem and there's no solution, it becomes your problem (laughs) to solve. That's, and I think that's something that all of us should carry in our, our lives that, you know, if there's no solution, it's your problem on the project. Um, How, how in like a, you know, it, in France, you know where to get all the frames you would need of all the sizes and, and coordinating that in such a short period of time. I know, I know. And while well, she lived in Paris for three and a half years, so maybe she knew some, she had some contacts. Oh, yeah, probably. So. Now, Epcot, they said, didn't have anything for the entry. So she designed a large solar dish with rails that moved around. And she had to do a lot of research for it. So by the time it was designed and constructed, it was no longer like the latest and greatest. So in technology, so it got scrapped. (laughs) So first I was thinking, I never saw that, but that's why. Uh, She said she worked with Ray Bradbury, John Hench, and Marty Sklar, and John DeCare Jr. on story development for Spaceship Earth. And she wasn't, though, part of the storytelling team. She was asked to write the index card due to her neat handwriting. So you see, you're (laughs) right, Nancy. Lettering lettering does become important. It does. (laughs) It does. So... So she said, how did working at the parks keep um, sort of keep you working or inspire your work at Walt Disney Imagineering? Peg said it was fundamental. Working in Storybookland canal boats and taking 10 guests on a boat, you get acquainted with them. She said, you see the exquisite details and learning that there's a whole unseen crew that maintains those details and keeps the park clean. Um, it was, it was 
also a gentle entry into um, bigger ideas and also, you know, of the language, like, you know, they have, we have guests, not customers um, and that everyone should be treated as a VIP. Ellie's um, started as a Disneyland tram operator in the, I uh, in the parking lot. Isn't that interesting? And she had to move guests through space, the, the, through the space there, the parking area. So it was yeah. important how they started their day. So she said as an assistant host, she, um, she, she learned that there is there for many guests, this is their first experience. So when designing attractions, yeah. it has to be comfortable for guests and for cast members to be able to create the, um, the magic. Yeah. So, so then they asked, is there any advice that you would have for women breaking into a boys club mentality, which, and that could be at any, in any corporation, any situation, you could exactly. run into a boys club mentality. So their advice, this is an advice for everyone here, work your hardest do your best. If you don't have the answer, research the answer. So basically don't give up. Don't sit on your laurels, you know, as the saying goes. Yeah. She said, find people who will be an advocate for you because it's it can be hard to um, do it on your own. So um, they said, speak up when something needs to be said. If you're starting out, realize that what you're doing is establishing your foundation and recognize and hold on to learning moments and then build on all of this. So, and you have to ask yourself, it, it, if you really want to be there, then it may be better to accept less than what you expected to get in the door. You know, we always say, you know, yeah. that entry position, then work to get where you need to be and learn what you need to know in order to get to where you want to be. So um, regarding promotions and all that, you have to determine what do you want? Do you want the title or do you are you getting satisfaction with the work? And then yep. maybe the promotion is not as important. Um, they said opportunities will come, but you have to be dedicated. And I, and I think this just applies to anybody, no matter what your gender is in order to succeed. I think this is all excellent advice. It so, is. It there. really is. Yeah. So then they, um, they, they, there was, uh, there was some Q and a from the audience. And one is, one was a good question was, what is the best advice you got from a relative or another Imagineer? Tori said um, her dad never gave direct advice, but some, but from observation, she learned to take chances. And remember, her dad was existential. Mm -hmm. So she went from, um, he went from animation, then he became a story writer. Then Walt, taught him that he was also a songwriter and um and then to a designer so you know he he learned how to um move up like that although walt also recognized talent in existentio that existentio didn't recognize and that's how he got to like write lyrics write stories things like that and then they asked if you were forced to return to imagineering what discipline would you want to be? And remember, there's 140 disciplines. Kathy said 
she would still want to she would still want to be a show producer. She got great satisfaction in it, but she's enjoying retirement, so she wouldn't go back. <laughs> You'll find that's a theme in in their their um, responses. Um, she Ellie said she loved architecture. Uh, there are many facets to it. You can and you you can work on a project from beginning to end. And not a lot of the disciplines enable you to do that. But she's enjoying retirement. <laughs> so she has no intention of coming back. Tori said that she had a 40-year career um, being um, doing interior design. So she said she can't imagine doing anything else. Peg said if it involves going back to Paris, she would give it serious consideration, whatever it was. <laughs> so that's um, funny. Yeah, of course I'll take that free transfer back to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, then she was asked if you could, if they were asked if you could dine with any, um, any woman Disney Imagineer who came before you, who would it be? We can probably guess the two. Alice, that it would I'm be. sure, was really popular. No, actually, they said the two because they probably had had dinner with Alice, you know, yeah. um, during the course uh, of their career. True. But Harriet Burns was oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. she, she was the first lady of Imagineering, the first woman to hold a creative job in Imagineering. Um, so she, they said she was prim, proper, fancy, and she could handle any man. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and she was the one because of the, you know, she was always impeccably dressed, you know, in a lot of the behind the scenes stories that Walt yeah. told about the parks on the wonderful world of color, Harriet was always in there, you know, with her hair up and wearing a scarf around her neck and usually in a, in a nice suit. And looking yeah. very Audrey Hepburnish. Yes. Yes. You're right. She, she did have that style. You know, she said she always had a pair of pants. She always had overalls in case she needed to climb a ladder. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. Now Dorothea Redman is the other one. Oh yeah, yeah. Who, of course, you know, designed, helped design Club Thirty Three, and um, the you know the apartments for Walt and Roy that became the Disney Gallery later on. Uh, um, they they loved how she laid out her art. And Peg worked with her when she was designing the Disney Gallery. I miss the Disney Gallery. So, the the being, having it in the old um, in the Opera House and the old bank, it just isn't the same for some reason. Yeah. So they talked about the process of developing the book. Um, they first had to do a proposal for Disney Publishing, um, and that would be with Wendy Lofton at the time. So, so, and that was so that they'd have access to the archives and publishing channels. Then Lindsay um, Broderick did the layout and the cover of the book. And the process started in 2018, 2019, and it was delayed due to COVID. And then there was a question, and this now goes back to some of the previous talks I just reported on. Was the story of the lion in the Animal Kingdom pitch meeting urban legend? And I'm I'm going to say what Peg said, and then I'm going to talk about what what um, Leslie Iwerks said about that in her presentation. <laughs> um, Peg was there. 
<laughs> she said it was in Glendale in a large industrial building and Barry um, Braverman's Epcot team were sitting in front and Joe Rohde's Animal Kingdom team was in the back. So there was a huge conference room and Joe filled it with plants and concept art to create sort of an outdoor environment. And then right. Peg, Peg saw the trainer bring in, now she's saying it was a lion at 9.30 a.m. because there's going to be a little discrepancy in the story from what Leslie said. Um, but they brought in the lion at um, 9.30 a.m. and they fed him for a 10 a.m. meeting. Then the trainer just sort of walked him around a bit. Um, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were delayed an hour. <laughs> and so so oh, no. this, this lion was being prepped for a 10 a.m. meeting, and now it's 11 a.m. And Peggy thought that this lion is going to get hungry. <laughs> so the meeting finally started. Joe begins his pitch and says, you've seen wild animals in zoos. Imagine how it would be to experience them up close. Then the trainer brought in the lion and walked him around the room. And from what I have heard, the you know everybody's eyes just became as big as you know saucers in this and joe didn't acknowledge that this was happening he kept um he just kept talking doing his pitch and peg saw the trainer lead the lion out and as we all know joe's project was approved now what leslie said um she said that two and she, she told this story but that there were two animals that were brought by the trainer. There was, I believe it was a cheetah. It's a cheetah, or I think it was a cheetah, cheetah or a panther, and um, and a tiger. And so the um they so the trainer went to Joe Rody and said, you know, the the cheetah's a little antsy. And he said, I'm not sure if he should be in the same room with people said but the tiger is mellow tiger is fine he said so because joe had requested like a cheetah or a panther originally so that's why the trainer brought him but seeing that the animal was a bit agitated um he brought uh, the mellow tiger also and he asked joe now you can have this cheetah if you want but i really recommend the tiger and so supposedly according to leslie it was the tiger that was brought into the room. And um, so we know it was a wild beast, a wild, you know, of the, the you know, of the um, cat family. So anyway, that's the story. And then uh, supposedly Michael Eisner was asked about this afterwards. And, you know, what did you think? Do you think this was a great pitch meeting? He said it was awful. <laughs> he did not like being that close to a wild beast, but, People had been criticizing Joe Rohde's project, Animal Kingdom Proposal, because they said, what's what's exciting? What's interesting about animals? So that's why he brought one in, so that everybody could learn what is exciting about seeing live animals up close. So anyway, but either way, whether it was a tiger, a lion, a cheetah, a panther, it's just a great, great story. It is. Yeah. You know, you see the pictures. I mean, gosh only knows how many Disney books have the picture in it. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, they love, they love bringing animals in for tons of movies from Snow White on. Oh, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
it was just a thing. So it doesn't surprise me the jury wanted to do that in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think it was brilliant. And, and and as everybody listens to this show knows, Animal Kingdom is my favorite park at Walt Disney World. So I love hearing these kinds of stories. Yeah. And there's a good example of thinking outside the box. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. decorate the conference room as Africa and then bring in an African beast. <laughs> so to help you with your pitch meeting. So who would have sunk it? So So those are my talks that I wanted to share with you. This is a wonderful reason, you know, go on the Walt Disney family museum website because it is like one of the Holy grails of, for Walt. Cause you hear Walt tell his story in his own words from uh, various uh, interviews and you see him tell his story and also those who worked with him as well in the museum, but they have such wonderful talks. They have one coming up on the music of the silly symphonies and then they have another one, the voice of Goofy, Goofy Bill Farmer is going to be there because they're running oh, a dogs and cats exhibit right now, Disney dogs and cats, which we're going to talk about next week. There's a sneak preview for you. And, um, and uh, he's going to talk about one of his favorite charities. I think it's like guide dogs for the blind. That's not the name of it, but that's, oh, I used to contribute like to them when I first became a nuclear mess. And, uh, oh, really? That was yeah. one of my, you know, we all had to pick a charity out of the, uh-huh. you, or of the, um, UNICEF or United, or United Charity. You United know, I Way? Mean. United Way. Well, yeah, it was, it was the one that begins with you. We had to pick, we get, we're given a book since we're for the government and they said pick a charity and guide dogs for the blind was was mine yeah it's a it's a wonderful wonderful um program so anyway so you know become a member of the museum uh come on up attend some of these talks i will probably see you i did meet some listeners at the talk i was at with leslie iwerks and that was always fun so um it's a wonderful museum and we need to support it because we you know we don't want museums to go away so we should always try to support museums as we can even as just attending them but now it's time for this week in disney history oh me me i i let you go first last time yeah so no, I, I'm always, gonna go. I always offer the guest hosts the opportunity to go first <laughs> I know I chickened out last time because I I wasn't sure how this ran, but I'm going to go for actually our recording date. Today is the 18th. And in 1977, a home once owned by Walt Disney is sold for um, $207,002, basically, Mm -hmm. which is a very odd way to end that number um that is it was the historic house at um and let me get my blind glasses here 4053 walking way in the los Feliz neighborhood of los angeles it was um home to walt lillian and two daughters diane and shan and sharon um and they moved from there to Holmby Hills. Um, and it was actually featured in the 1940 issue of um, 
of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Oh. As a matter of fact, they lived there until 1945, which it's really timely that this was a um, a selling because recently the home was indeed sold to another person um, recently who is renting it at for forty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah. So I think we that should all get mean- together. All of us contribute some money to the rent. And we all just live together in that house for for a month. Well, we are. <laughs> if we did, we would have to raise a one hundred and twenty thousand dollars security deposit. Oh dear lord. And we would also be on the hook for cable, electricity, trash, water, and gas bills. You know, you think for 40000 a month, utilities would be covered. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it's funny because the original cost of the home when it was built in 1932 was only $50,000. Mm-hmm. So imagine the rental price for a month now. It's crazy. Have you ever been on one of the tours? Because they, well, I don't know if they're going to offer them now, now that they're renting it, but they used to offer tours. You know, no, I never got a chance. I never got to go on one because they would announce those tours like only a few days beforehand. Oh, I know. Me and Joe was always all over them. (laughs) So I couldn't, I couldn't get down there in time for them. But it's it's on my wish list. If anybody has a connection, if anybody listening rents that house for a month, please invite me over <laughs> so I can take a look at it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I know. I bet even I, Craig would fly out for it. <laughs> well, you know, the first time that hit the news, I I sent it in a text message to Pete because if anyone would do it, it would probably be he and he and John yeah. and Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. But I'm hoping they'll offer tours again so that we can see. And they said the reason the tours are announced at last minute is because it was done when the owners were out of town, and sometimes they didn't. The people who coordinate the tours didn't get much notice that the owners, hey, we're going to be out of town this weekend. You know, we'll rent it out for tours. So anyway, so that's why. Well, my item is uh, talks about my favorite area. I have two favorite areas in Disneyland. One is Main Street, just because I love the music and I love the setting. And I love how it introduces you to the story. Yeah. But my really favorite area is New Orleans Square. Yeah. I could hang out there half the day. and But that is it opened on July 24th. 1966 and it was with a ceremony presided by Walt Disney and the real mayor of New Orleans at the time Victor Shiro and um, it's a three acre site it was the first new themed land added to Disneyland since it opened in 1955 New Orleans Square cost 18 million dollars to build back in the midnight early to mid 1950s it cost 17 million to build all of Disneyland so, so, now, and it, it only took them twenty three years to almost to till today to actually open up Splash Mountain. Yeah, that's that was true. Going on. Yeah, so, yeah, it's like all tied in together. Yeah, 
So um, New Orleans Square, and it's not really a square. It's sort of like a bunch of streets and back alleys and stuff like that. It's really cool. Um, it's the only land to debut at Disneyland at the time without a single attraction because Pirates wasn't ready yet. Um, right. So it was filled with shops and restaurants, some, one, some ones that I, I missed, like the one-of-a-kind shop. Oh, and, I love that shop. Yeah, and that was Lillian's basically yeah. baby that one because it's an antique shop they even had a gutenberg bible in there at one time for sale wow so and mademoiselle antoinette's parfumerie which is still there but it's different do you remember nancy when yeah. you could go in and create your own scents yeah and, and then they would keep it on file for you so that when you came back uh on another visit they could just pull your file and recreate your scent for you yeah. So I think that was fun. I think that would still be a hit today. I really do. I remember my cousins, most of them are female. They loved doing that. So, and my aunts would too. Um, now, the Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion attractions won't open until, you know, Pirates opened in 67 and the Haunted Mansion opened in 69. So also part of this dedication is the Firehouse 5 plus 2, the Dixieland Jazz Band led by, which is a Dixieland Jazz Band that was led by animator Ward Kimball. Um, The Disneyland ambassador at the time, Connie Swanson, was there. And, you know, by this time, Walt's health was failing because, you know, he was going to die past in December. So this wasn't his last public appearance at the park, but it was the last, like, really big one where there was an event that he was hosting. He still made visits to the park and there are photographs of him in the park after this date. But, um, but just New Orleans square. I, I just love going there at its heyday when it had the canoes, which it still has. And they had the Mike Fink keel boats and you'd see the Mark Twain and the Columbia and the Tom Sawyer rafts all going around. I could just sit there and just watch them and listen to the music. And remember oh, how they used to have different kinds of jazz groups there. Yeah. I, I, I could just listen to them and you never knew where they were going to be. You know, like, remember, remember the, the fellow, we, I think we're going yes. to say the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are all good. We are yeah. of one mind. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. gentleman who used to play music, he'd stand outside of the little shop that was eventually the dress shop before Lord only knows what it is mm-hmm. now. Um, and yeah, he, he played there for decades. He would also play in court, the court of angels. Oh, as well, yeah. when that when that was open to us, and that's where I saw most of the time. Did he? He played like the guitar, something, didn't he? Um, he he did a a mix of instruments, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. And I remember he was doing banjo once. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I I saw him do that as well. Play on that, but I I saw him a lot in the Court of Angels, which now is the entrance to Club Thirty Three. Sadly. Yeah. So I think it was Leslie Iwerks who said she's she's hoping someday though or or no somebody told me in Imagineering there are some people trying to figure out how it can be reopened that the court can be reopened to the public, but I don't know how serious that is because you know those Club Thirty Three members carry a lot of clout. <laughs> 
Well, you so, know. So that's why. So if you ever, when you visit Disneyland, if you're coming to the Diz event, Diz and Dreams Unlimited travel event, yes. be sure you hang out in New Orleans Square, have beignets and all that. Maybe someday they'll finish um, Tiana's Palace in there that replaced the French Market. Yeah, I'm but, looking forward to that. We used to go to the French Market a lot. Yeah, and yeah. it was fun to catch Tiana and then catch the one other gal who mm-hmm. sang with the jazz band. She yeah, went and then and then they had the Royal Street Bachelors perform. Yeah, they were terrific. And sometimes Tiana would sing with them. So I'm hoping yeah. they bring that back. You know, maybe it wasn't a meet and greet for Tiana, but it was. It, she was singing, and she was dressed more in like the 1920s outfit, like almost like a flapper oh. outfit that that you see her in at like the, the end of the, the film. restaurant outfit. Yeah, her yeah, the restaurant clothes. outfit. Yeah, that she would wear that, and I thought I hope they bring that back because that was It'd terrific. Be real nice. Yeah, it but speaking real nice. speaking of the Diz event. So we've been talking about it for weeks, the Diz and Dreams Unlimited Travel event. It's at Disneyland Resort from August 4th and 5th in there. Um, and then the 6th, there'll be uh, meet and greets. But as we mentioned a while back, the venue was changed from Paradise Pier to Avengers Campus. There are some new details available. The, the, on, on the 5th, the Diz Unplug Live podcast will be at the Grand Californian Convention Center from 2 to 3. And that's included with purchase of your ticket to the event on August 4th. And then um, from August 4th through the 6th, there'll be different meet and greets with podcast members. And they'll, they'll be announcing it. And that's also included with event admission. Um, some updates. The credentials are going to be distributed in the Grand California Convention Center from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on August 4th. If you can't make it during this time, they'll have it at the entrance to the reception. And the reception is sort of what we all surmised it would be. It's being moved to the, um, you know, that dining area near the Hyperion Theater that used to be part of the queue. Yeah, so, yeah, it, yeah. It's going to be in there. And Okay. Uh, if you're parking at Disneyland, you must park in Mickey and Friends because they're going to run the trams until 2 a.m., but only into the Mickey and Friends parking lot. How so, nice. Also new is everybody attending will get a complimentary theme park ticket, and it's good for three uh, admission to Cal- Disney California Adventure three hours prior to the park closing on, on- – okay. August 4th. And currently it closes at 10 p.m. So ticket, you can enter the park at 7 p.m. Of course, Disney could change the park hours. And then there's a complimentary three-hour park admission ticket is only distributed at the credential distribution area in the Grand Californian Convention Center. So that's important to remember. At 8.30, we'll be escorted to Disney California Adventures main entrance over to the Hyperion queue. But if you're already in the park, just go to the Hyperion queue a few minutes before the the private reception start time. So you don't have to go back to the front of the park. From 9 to 11, there'll be a private reception in, at, in the Hyperion queue. And you can meet, you know, all of us from the Diz Unplugged and, and also your fellow Dizzers. You can mix and mingle with food, drinks, and friends from 11 to 1 is the private party at Adventures Campus. And there's going to be light snacks, non-alcoholic beverages, and some meet and greets. So 
what you'll be able to experience is uh, the Web Slingers, the Spider-Man Adventure, Guardians of the Galaxy, Mission Breakout. Oh. I just have to get up my courage and start writing that. Oh, so. it is not bad. It is Toy Story Midway Mania. Mm-hmm. It's superheroes. Oh, I, I've been on it, but I don't like yeah. to drop. I don't like dropping. So oh, I just oh, to- oh, oh, Guardians, Guardians, not, yeah, Guardians not Web Galaxy. Slingers. Okay, we're talking yeah. about different rides here. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I have my blasters. I oh. have my Pepper Potts oh. blaster oh, and God. my Web Slinger. I'll be interested in seeing how those work. <laughs> They're fun. You can you can borrow one of mine. Oh, great! If the kids I, don't have it. I will take you up on that. The character meet and greets. You can meet Thor. Can meet Shuri, who I'm not entirely oh. sure who that is. And um, Steve- Shuri is the new Black Panther. Oh, okay. You know, I've not seen the new films. So Chal's sister. Chal, that's right. So I'm going to have to watch that before this event. Um, you'll meet Steve Rogers. So yeah. Oh, uh, Captain America is one of my favorite superheroes when I was a boy. So Captain America and Thor. Where um, you can meet Loki, and you can meet Spider Man. So this is going to be a lot of fun, you know. And they just added, you know, that Doctor Strange Mysteries of the Mystic Arts show. Yeah, they're going to do a showing of it at eleven fifteen p.m. just for us. Fun. Yeah, and I've never seen it at night. And I know Mary Jo always said it's better at night because they have a lot of um lighting effects. Yeah. For the show. I've only seen it during the daytime with the girls, yeah. right? Me too. And I sat on the blistering hot slate. That, oh, that I wonder if any uh, of I I wonder if any of the Dora Malahi will be um escorting oh. Shuri. That would be interesting because I've seen them there at Avengers Campus. And then the live broadcast is the next day from 2 to 3 p.m. at the Grand California Resort and Spa Convention Center. Um, they said, come about a half an hour early. Come around 1.30. We're going to have some light snacks. And so you can mix and mingle with folks and, you know, snack and all that. But you have to buy an event ticket. For um, you can't just come to the podcast, but if you buy the event ticket, don't want to go to the podcast, that's fine too. Now we did have discounted rooms; those are all sold out. But you can contact John at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com if you'd like to book a room for the event, um, or your Dreams Unlimited Travel agent. And the tickets are on sale. So if you go to Disboards and go to, it's posted at the top. They're on the disc boards, all this information. And there's also a link in order to get your tickets. And it's only $125. Get a lot for for this. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I know you're going to be there, Nancy. Yep, on your date. Woo! I know, Nancy. I could bring a plus one as a, well, as a Diz, um, you know, as a member of the Diz. So I, and Nancy is my plus one. Woohoo! And so my husband and the kids will be running around on their own. Oh, I'm <laughs> they sure you'll fully join don't expect them. to see me. I, I plan on hanging out with Craig and Ryan while we have slingers <laughs> most of the evening. Okay, that sounds good. All right. And so, Nancy, have you been, speaking of Disneyland, have you made any trips there recently or to downtown Disney or anything? Is there 
Anything I've interesting? I've been kind of saving up my trip excitement. Uh, ever since, you know, we lost my husband's silver pass when he left Disney. It's It's been kind of hard for us to make it out and make mm-hmm. it down. The expense that affects everybody else. We really understand that. You know, we're oh, real yes. people too. So a family of four passes for a family of four is pretty much prohibitive when you're, you know, starting your own business and stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you want so, to tell folks about your business? Just really. Oh quickly? yeah. We are nanoscapes, wwwnano dash scapes.com escapes is in like landscapes and we do 3d tangible memories mm-hmm. so any any theme we cater to disney people we do full parks um uh, we've got some excellent california adventure prints we've got um We've got Disneyland, of course. We pulled out and extracted some of the attractions to make them their own little things. We've got Galaxy's Edges. We also have Los Angeles Landmarks, Dodger Stadium. Who doesn't love a good Hollywood sign? Or even the Griffith Park Observatory, which is just up the hill from Walt's house. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so So... We've got a wide range of things on the website and, you know, certainly if you're a Disney, if you're connecting with Walt listener, um, we have a, a, a code thank you for 10% off your entire purchase. Oh, that's very generous. Thank you. And so, these are sort of like 3D models as if you flew your drone over the park yeah. and took and, a 3D photo and then it is a construction of that. Yep. So it's really cool. It's so taken we- from Montserrat aerial data. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the places in the correct scale to each other. Mm-hmm. And so, so what you- is your website so folks can see it? And you're on Facebook one, too, I think. Once again, it's www.nano-scapes.com. Nano Escapes. Mm-hmm. So, yay. We're, we have fun. We, in fact, we do a lot of custom things. We cater to DVC members. And we even have plans to have a Walt Disney Family Museum in our collection. A little really? four by a little oh. five by five Walt Disney Family Museum that you can carry yourself. And- very interesting. Hmm. So, okay, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you for sharing that. So, yes, oh, everybody check, check it out. So, Nancy, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, They can find me on Facebook at Nancy L. Johnson or Nanoscapes on Facebook, Instagram, nano.cities. And that's pretty much where my life is right now, besides being here with you, Michael. Yes, and I'm so happy that you're able to join me. A little behind-the-scenes thing. Nancy volunteered at the last minute to join me because what I had planned for today got rescheduled. And it got rescheduled rather late in the game. (laughs) So (laughs) I sort of scrambled um, to put together this episode. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. 
But well, I always love sharing what goes on at the Walt Disney Family Museum. I was going to say, it's so much fun listening to you talk about all these programs and all these speakers. You really tend to relate their stories well. You know, not everybody can have the same great conversation about something they witnessed. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It just shows you're the quintessential teacher that you are. Oh, (laughs) thank you. That is my passion. That's my passion. So, well, you can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. And Nancy, too. Um, if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives, my Disney history episodes, and a link Craig includes in our show notes or disneyplug.com. And you may even hear Nancy in some of those yeah. segments, too, from the Disneyland team. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 